can open up your copy of the scripture to that text that Andrew just read for us. Uh, we had uh, we changed in the bulletin a few places the, from last week the book of the Bible we're in and the verses. We forgot to change the chapter number. So in a couple places it says Matthew 10. It's actually, we're actually in Matthew 28. So if that was confusing to you at all, sorry, we're in Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 20. That's where we're going to be today, the text that Andrew just uh, read for us. And so uh, that's where we're going to be. Last week we started, I know some of you were still on uh, Christmas break or you were out of town or some may have been sick or unable to come for different reasons. But last week we started a series that we're calling Soul Winning about the subject, the more common term is evangelism, the responsibility, the opportunity that we have as God's people to take the good news of Jesus to the people who don't believe it yet and to proclaim it to them. Um, last week we, we talked a little bit about uh, why we must do that, why that is something that has to take place. If people are going to come to know Christ, if they're going to be saved by him, they have to hear of him from people like us. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. The way God brings salvation to people is by them hearing the good news of Jesus. But we're going to see today, and what we probably are already aware of in our own lives, if we just do a little bit of evaluating uh, for those of us who are believers in the room, is the fact that there's a big gap in our lives between what we know we should do even what we have to do, what God tells us to do, and what we actually do. Uh, we can be persuaded all we want from the scriptures. If you were here last Sunday, I hope you were persuaded that we must take the good news. We must preach it. We must tell people the good news of Jesus. But often there's a big gap then between actually doing it and knowing that we should do it. Knowing that it's expected of us and actually coming it made me uh, think that in life that happens in a lot of places. The, the young kids in the room, if you're still in here, I was thinking of just the realm of obeying our parents. How many times are we told from the Bible or have our parents quote to us, Ephesians 6.1, like children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Uh, we know that we're to do that, that God tells us to do that, but from the various early ages of life, we struggle to actually do it. Or if you're a college student here, we know as a session starts, we should be getting ahead on our studies. We know it would be wise to get ahead on our assignments, on our readings, on the things that are due at the end of the session. We know we should do that, but how often do we actually do it? We often just wait until it's, it's pressed upon us. We, we do this with our diets. We do this with our finances. We know there's things we should do that we, that we must do sometimes, but we struggle to actually do those things. And today we want to take some time to think about why that is, why there's that gap with this issue of soul winning in particular. If we, many of us in the room say, we know we should, we know we must, yet we never do it. It'd behoove us to think, why? Like, what is the gap? What are the reasons behind that? What's keeping me from doing it? The, uh, in the book of James, chapter 122, we have a famous text that says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving you. So many of us in this room, including me at times, we're deceiving ourselves. We, we hear the word, we think, I know I should tell people, but we don't actually do it. And it would behoove us to inform ourselves, to think about why is it? What keeps me from doing it? What lies do I believe? What things are going on in my mind and heart that are creating that gap, that are allowing that gap to stay between what I know I should do and what I actually do. So this text today, we're going to put our finger on a few of those reasons. We're going to see six in particular uh, that are reasons that there's this gap between what we know we should do, what we must do, and what we actually do. And I, I trust as we see these, as we have the Spirit point these things out to us, 
through this text that, that God would give us encouragement to overcome those things. As we're aware of these reasons, as we're aware of the things that are creating this disconnect, that we uh, not just be aware of them, that we'd be over, able to overcome them uh, by the power of the Spirit. And so we're going to work under six headings this morning as we work through verses 16 through 20. And I believe they'll be up on the screen as we go. Uh, but the very first one is going to be this subject of worship. Matthew, in this end of his gospel, uh, talks very clearly about the response that these disciples have. And so just so you know where we're picking up in the text Andrew read, it's at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, this record of Jesus' life and ministry. It's at the very end of it. Uh, it's after he's been crucified. It's after he's been laid in the grave, after he's been raised from the dead. He first appeared to a few of his uh, female disciples, and he told them earlier in chapter 28 to go tell the 12, go tell uh, the, those disciples to meet him on this mountain, this particular mountain. And what Andrew read for us is when they meet him there, uh, when they actually meet him there. And it says, Matthew records for us that the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had directed them. And then listen to this, this initial reaction that they have. Verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. When they saw him, they worshiped these disciples, uh, it's those men, then, that he gives a commission to, right? It's those men that, that are worshiping him there on that mountain. We don't know what that looks like, uh, but it's those men that he commissions to go make new worshipers, to go with this good news about him, to tell others it is people who worship him that he sends. Uh, I would say it this way, that Christ only commissions worshipers. Those are the people that he sends out. Christ only commissions worshipers of himself to go out and to make new disciples, to go make new worshipers of himself. And this is important for us to think about because we'll see as this text goes on that Jesus has authority over every human being. He has authority over every human being who has ever lived, every human being in this room, every human being who will ever live. But he only sends out those who worship. He didn't go to Jerusalem, the town where he had just been crucified and, and buried. He didn't go to Jerusalem and just tell everybody, hey, go make disciples of me. He told the people who were worshiping him already, go make disciples of me. And the reason this is important and why I'm, I'm trying to belabor this is because I think that there are some of us in this room, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but some of us in this room, the reason we don't win souls for Christ the reason we don't even try that, the reason we don't tell people about Christ is because we don't worship him ourselves. We've heard about him. We're like all the people back in Jerusalem in this scene who they've heard about Christ. They've, they've heard that he's been raised from the dead. Maybe that rumor is starting to spread, but they don't believe it, and they definitely don't worship him. Those are not the people Christ is sending out. The people he sends out are worshipers. And so for some of us in this room, it would be good for us to take inventory of our own lives and say, do I worship Christ? To worship him is not rocket science. It means that you think he's worthy and you treat him as such. You ascribe worth and value to him. You recognize him for who he is and how great and wonderful he is as the one who's died for you and been raised for you. That you respond to him from a heart that values him and sees him as worthy. And could it be that many of us in this room, or some of us at least, the reason we're inactive, the reason there's that gap, is because we don't worship Christ ourselves in the first place. And if that is you today, I would call you to respond in repentance and turn from that devaluing, that ignoring of 
Jesus and start first and foremost, not by going to tell people about him, but by worshiping him yourself. By saying, I am guilty, but he is the Savior who can save me and forgive me. Please forgive me. And he will. We must be worshipers before we make new worshipers. Before we're to be sent by him to make new worshipers. So I think that is reason number one we see in this text. Is Christ only commissions worshipers? That is worship is one reason many of us do not make new worshipers. We do not make disciples. We don't seek to win souls for Christ. And God help us if we're not worshipers first. If we're just trying to do actions on behalf of Jesus when we don't even value him ourselves. And we'll never do that. So that's the first heading. But I think you see there's this interesting statement that Matthew makes. And this text we call the Great Commission is so familiar to many of us. If we grew up in church, we've been around Christianity a long time. I think sometimes we may read verse 17 and just be so excited to get to verse 18 that we miss a significant thing that is said at the end of verse 17. Did you catch that? It says that when they saw him, they worshipped him, comma, but some doubted. And so the second heading, I think, another reason there's this gap in some of our lives between, hey, I know I should be telling people about Jesus, but I don't actually do it, has to do with this issue of doubt. This issue of doubt. Think about what is going on here. I don't know how I would have responded if I was Peter or John or whoever else uh, was there on that mountain. Uh, Those 11 or the others that maybe were with them observing these things. Uh, But when those guys are standing there, they are literally standing right in front of the resurrected Jesus. This one that they had seen brutally crucified. This one that some of them had helped actually put in a tomb and wrap his body and lay it in the tomb. They are now seeing him alive and well. I don't know what that scene, it would have been epic, I'm guessing, on that mountain, how they would have been maybe walking from a distance. But they see this resurrected Jesus, alive and well. And they worship him. That's their first response is, wow, But he is alive just like he said he would be. He is alive. How amazing, how wonderful is he? But then some of them, not all of them, but some of them have doubts creep up. Some of them have these questions that immediately it seems like surface in their mind. Things like, how could this be? Are we, I don't know what they're thinking, maybe wondering if they're crazy or things like this. They have these doubts that come into their mind. But I want you to note, in the presence of doubt, And these people, Christ still sends them out. They are worshiping him, but they have real doubts. Immediately in that moment, they have significant doubts, enough to be mentioned in the scriptures. And Christ undoubtedly knew that, but he still tells them, go make disciples. Go tell people about me. Go tell the good news about me everywhere that you go. Christ commissions people who doubt. But some of us, we let our doubts, if we have questions about the the Christian faith, we let those doubts paralyze us. We think, man, if I have any questions at all, if I have any uncertainties at all, if I have any wonderings in my heart at all about this message of Christ, I can't go tell other people about that. Like, who, who am I to go tell people if I have questions in my own mind? But I want you to hear, based on this text of Scripture, I want you to hear loud and clear, doubt does not disqualify you. Doubt does not disqualify you from going and telling people about Christ. The fact that you have questions 
in your mind and heart doesn't exempt you and get you off the hook, so to speak, of telling people about him. Christ knew these men were doubting in that moment, and he still sends them. He still says, go tell people about me, doubts and all. You know what you've seen. You know what you've heard. You know I'm here with you. Go tell people that. Because what's going to save people isn't your certainty. It's the truth that I'm alive, that I've been crucified, and that I've been raised from the dead. Like, preach in the midst of your doubt. Tell people in the midst of your doubt. Because the gospel is what will save. But I think so many of us let doubt just paralyze us and let us stay in this place of keeping it to myself until I have all the questions answered, until I have everything figured out in my life. And I was thinking about this subject. I ran across a, a quote. I don't have this on the screen. It's a little bit longer, so I'd encourage you to listen to it. But it's from a pastor uh, named Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who I, I deeply respect. Talking about doubt, he said this. He said, doubt are not incompatible with faith. Indeed, I'd go so far as to say, at the risk of being misunderstood, that if anyone has never been troubled by doubt in his or her Christian life, such a person would do well to examine the foundations again and make certain that they're not enjoying a false peace or resting in what I'd call a presumptuous believing. I thought that was interesting and encouraging to my soul because there are times and seasons where I have doubts in my heart. I have questions, sometimes old ones, sometimes new ones that come up in my mind that aren't immediately resolved, that aren't just easy answers. And sometimes I have let that in my life paralyze me and think, I can't go tell people. I can't speak on behalf of Jesus when I have these doubts. But the presence of doubt does not mean that there is not faith. They can coexist. They're coexisting in these men on that mountain. They're worshiping Christ while they doubt, and Christ commissions doubters. He, he commissions them to go tell the good news. So doubt may be a reason there's this gap between knowledge and practice, but we must not let that keep us from telling people about Christ, thinking we have to sit on our hands until we have every question answered, because new questions will come up. Like that, there will be new doubts together. There will be new questions that you come, but we speak with confidence what we know to be true from the word of God. We speak it to people, not our uncertainties, not our questions. We speak the gospel to people because it is the power to save. So we've seen worship, we've seen doubt. The, the third one, as we get into the more famous parts of this text in verse 18, the third heading I would use here is the issue of authority. And this is hugely significant in our day and age, in our culture, the issue of authority. Because I don't know what it was like when they met on this mountain, what it actually looked like, but we do know what Jesus says to them. And the very first thing he says to them, it says that when he comes to him, he says to them, and he starts by a statement about authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't start with the command, go make disciples. He starts with this statement of fact, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm in charge of everything, he says. I'm in charge of every atom in this universe. I'm in charge of every person on this planet. He is in charge of everything. He has been given authority by his heavenly Father as one who has obeyed him perfectly, even to the point of death. God has now raised him up and given him authority over all things. And Jesus wanted them to know that. Because note the connection in verse 19. He says, hey, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Then verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, I have authority over all things, so go and make disciples of people. 
Go to the ends of the earth. Go where you are. Go make disciples of people. I have authority over them. Go, therefore, and do this. But I think culturally in our day and age, and it's probably like this in, in different parts of the planet today as well, it's becoming more and more awkward in our culture to tell someone else, to have the courage to tell somebody else, you must believe something. Like that you have to believe this. Not just, we're, hey, we're going to talk and kind of put our beliefs on the table and dialogue about them, but you must believe this. You must respond this way if you're to be saved, if you're to be right with God. That is becoming more and more forbidden, more and more strange, more and more out of bounds to people because we think that nobody has authority to speak to anybody else and tell them what they must believe, to tell them what they must think, how they must respond. But Jesus would not agree with us. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me so go make disciples. He doesn't say, all authority has been given to you, go make disciples. And speak on your own authority. He says, all authority has been given to me, go speak on my behalf. Because these people belong to me. They answer to me. He knew what we know, that at the end of time, everybody is going to report to Christ. Everybody, including everyone in this room, everyone you know, ever will know, everyone is going to be accountable to him. He is the one who has authority over all people, and this is so important for us because we lack courage to speak up to people, to tell people, you have to believe this. You have to respond to Christ this way. And it's so important, I would say it this way, to remember that we speak on his authority, not our own. We speak on the authority of Christ, not on the authority of Mark or on whoever, fill in the blank of your name. We speak with the authority of Christ. There's imagery that's used in the New Testament a few different times of us as Christians being ambassadors. And I love that, that analogy, that illustration. It's this idea we see even in governments today where a king, a president, a ruler can't be in all places at all times, so they send people on their behalf to speak for them, to speak uh, sometimes hard things to people or to governments in other places. But that person's not just there on their own. They're there on behalf of the one who sent them. And the same thing is true with us as we go to speak to people in our workplaces, to speak to people in our neighborhoods. When we talk to them about Christ, it's not just me versus you, so to speak, and whose authority is better. We come on behalf of Christ, and we speak on his authority, not on mine. If I was just speaking on my authority, they could dismiss that. I'm just a mere fellow human being with them, but Christ is the one who has authority, and the way he's chosen to speak and call people to respond is through people like us. We speak on his authority, on his behalf. There's a reason we call this text often in churches, the one we're reading today, the Great Commission. We've been commissioned by Jesus. We didn't just come up with this task on our own, like, hey, let's go make some more disciples. Jesus says, go make disciples on my behalf. Go tell people the truth about me. Go tell them to respond to me in these ways, that they must answer to me, and that I'm glad to receive them. I'm glad to forgive them. I, I, I have died for them. I've been raised for them. Go tell them and call them to respond. It is natural, I think, for us to, to realize in context like our families to say, well, I have authority to speak to my children. I have authority to speak to my grandchildren. I, there's some context where we feel like we still have authority in our culture, but when it comes to the, the public at large and people outside of my family, sometimes we, we just cripple in fear because we think, I have no authority to speak. But Christ gives us authority. He gives us his authority 
fatigue. And that is so important for us to remember and to not let that gap because of authority stay. Like, I have no authority to speak to them. Yes, you do. And it's a derived authority. It's one that's been given to you by Christ. So let's not be cowards. Let's not be people who are afraid to speak on his behalf. He calls us to do that. So we see authority as an as a issue that sometimes we let create this gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. The fourth one, the fourth heading, and I'll be careful how I phrase this, so don't be too alarmed when you see this, but the fourth heading that I think sometimes creates this gap is this category I would call salesmanship. Salesmanship. Uh, when it comes to the sharing of the gospel, when it comes to telling people about Christ, uh, this is the best word I could come up with, but hear me out on what I, I would say here from this text. I think sometimes in our day and age, I grew up like this, I don't know if you've uh, grown up uh, in situations like this, but we think of soul winning. We think of going to tell people the good news about Jesus too much like sales. I was taught to think this way as a kid, to, to think of sharing the gospel in a particular way. That I, don't, I was taught in many ways, I don't think it was directly, but it was implied, to think of telling the gospel to somebody, to a lost person, as a one-time really high pressure, all or nothing, take it or leave it type of situation. Like there's going to be this magical situation where some uh, opportunity came and I'm going to have like one shot and I better not blow it. Like I'm going to have, I got to have it airtight. I got to have all the right sentences. It's got to be a couple minutes long. Got to have all the right verses and just boom, lead up right to a call to decide something right then and there or take it or leave it type of situation. We even call it, you may use this terminology, I use it sometimes, we even call those a gospel presentation. Like it's a boardroom or something. Like I need to just have this package thing, give it to you and be really persuasive and really concise and you better take it or leave it, all or nothing. We think of it like sales. But I would say this, in this text, Jesus says to go make disciples, not sales. He says to go make disciples. He doesn't say go make sales, go make converts, like press them, they've got to decide right this second, press them, press them, press them. He says to go make disciples. That's the phrase he used on purpose was to make disciples. Because Jesus knew he was sending these people and he's sending us to bring salvation to people, to human beings who have questions, who have, uh, who have sin that they're addicted to, that they're enslaved to. He knew that with human beings often, although there's a point at which they are born again, there's a moment at which they are truly converted and united with Christ, that for most people there's going to be this process of hearing uh, the scriptures taught to them, hearing the testimony of Christ and what he's done for them, of having questions answered, of having uh, things addressed, having conviction brought to bear upon their heart that will lead up to that. That it doesn't typically, for most people in this room, if we told you, there wasn't, if you're a believer, there wasn't just some one-minute conversation you had with the person, and boom, I'm converted right then and there that second. God can do that. Praise God when he does that. But often he speaks through us ongoingly to people. He lets us ask them questions. He lets us open the scriptures with them and talk to them on behalf of Christ repeatedly, uh, telling them the good news, and then he converts them. Then he changes them. Then he changes their hearts. 
We, don't, we need to relieve ourselves of the pressure to feel like I have to present the entirety of the Bible in two minutes to this person and answer every question that they possibly have and make everything crystal clear because I got one shot to do this. We need to know better. That's what we're going to talk about next week is what to say to people. We need to have informed ideas of, okay, what is the content? What do I have to say? What is helpful to say to people? But let us rid ourselves of this idea that it is some one-time-only, high-stakes, short-timetable type of sales pitch that I give to somebody, like an elevator sales pitch. May we have a, a longer view of this. May we have a more patient view to engage people and make disciples, not just make sales. So we think of soul winning too much like sales, I would say. But we also fail, I will say this is true of me, but you want to think of the flip side of what we may call salesmanship is that sometimes we fail to do what I would call close the deal with people. We fail to close the deal with people. We, we talk around it. We talk about Jesus. We try to to bring up conversations through side doors. We like to make sure they at least know the bare essentials about Jesus. But then we fail to remember that the gospel is actually to be told to people to call them to respond to it. Not just for them to know it. Not just for them to hear it. Last week in our text we saw that yes, they must hear the good news, but they must believe it. And more than that, they must call upon Christ. And I think too often we settle, if we get up the courage in our conversations to talk to people, we settle with just giving them some very simplified version of Christianity to make sure they know the truth and we kind of, like I told them what I needed to tell them. And then we just assume God's going to do the work, in which he does the work of saving. But we don't actually press them with the truth of the gospel, say, you must be saved. You must turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ, friend. Like, will you do that? Like we, we stop short of that because that is the hardest part. It's that the, the good news is good news. And even if they think we're weird for believing it, uh, there's, a, there's a whole different level when you start to confront them with it and say, you have to believe this. Like child of mine, grandchild of mine, friend of mine, coworker of mine, you have to believe this. Will you call upon Christ? That's where the rubber meets the road to see, will they respond to him in faith? Will they call out to him? And that is part of what we must bring to them. That is part of what we must call them to. And where you see this in this text, and so, so I don't just throwing that out there as an idea, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he doesn't put end period there, right? He continues, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's an important statement, not just for the sake of baptism itself, although there's much that could be said about it, but baptism is an act of the person, that's an act of the body of Christians that is baptizing them, to say this person has changed. This person has turned from their sin and they have put their trust in Christ. They have believed the good news about him and they are identifying with him in baptism. That is a, a line in the sand, that is a, a, a drawing of a line to say, I was my old self, but Christ has saved me. I, I used to reject him and not worship him and care about him, but he has changed my heart and I have called upon him to save me and I'm confident that he will and that he has. Uh, baptism, it, it's, a, 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 it's a mile marker in a person's life to indicate that a shift has been made. Not that they just have heard the good news and they know how to repeat it, but that they believe it. That they've called upon Christ and we must call people to respond to him. 
We must seek to, it's not up to us to change their hearts, but it is up to us to call them to respond. To, to not just let it settle with information and conversation, but call them to respond. We must press toward seeing. Not to make disciples, we're to make disciples, not sales, but we are to press toward decision. We're to call people to actually respond in repentance and faith. I was thinking of the of, uh, dating relationships in our culture and how they lead toward marriage. There's a difference between when you are dating and when you are engaged or married, right? And typically in our culture, what triggers that is there is a question that's asked. It doesn't just morph into marriage over time. But you, you know the person, you, you get to know them, and then they ask you, will you marry me? Like we call them to relate to us in a certain way, and we're not asking Christ to marry us. Don't get any weird connotations like that. But there is, even in our human relationships, we know that there's a difference between dating and marriage. And it comes through the decision, the conscious decision of both parties to say yes. Like, we will be together forever. Uh, it doesn't just grow into that. And the same is true in telling the gospel to people. We don't just tell them the gospel and keep telling them the gospel and telling them the gospel. And then just, they're kind of 25% united with Jesus. And the next year, they're like 50% united with them. And then slowly, eventually, they're 100% united with him. There is a point at which they must call upon him and be saved. And we must press them towards that lovingly, not controllingly, not seeking to manipulate them, but call them believe upon Christ, to call out to him, not just to know about him. I think we're, we lack courage to do this often, because that is the hardest part of soul winning, is to call people to respond. I was reading a quote from an, an old pastor named Richard Baxter this week, and he was talking about this delay that happened in some people's hearts. When they've heard the gospel, they know it, but they've never called to respond. They're never called to actually decide to place their faith in Christ, and he said this, that every day that they uh, don't repent, he says, is a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. And we let that happen under our watch often as Christians. We maybe get the courage up to tell them, but we don't actually call them to respond. We don't tell them the response that's called for by Christ. We just share information. We must call them to be foolish of me to talk about this and not pause at least for just a moment and call upon some of you in the room today. So you, you have heard the good news countless times. You could maybe preach it better than I can. You could tell people about it. You know all the facts. You know all the Bible verses. You know the theology. You know all the questions. But you have not placed your faith in Christ. You are nearby him. You know about him. But you have not humbled yourself to a point of decision to say, Christ, I turn from my sin and I cry out to you for salvation. Please forgive me. May today be that day. May there be not a soul who walks out of this room saying that I, I just know information about Christ, but I have never been called to respond to him. I am calling you today to respond to him and turning away from your sin and putting your trust in him. And I want you to know he is glad to save you. He is glad to forgive you, but you must call upon Knowing the truth about him is not enough to save, but calling upon him as Savior and turning from your sin is. The salesmanship is our fourth category.
category. I think the fifth one uh, that we see in this text, and this is probably the biggest one, maybe like an umbrella reason that all these other ones fall under, is the issue of fear. The reason that we don't talk to people, the reason we know we should, but that we don't, might not have anything to do with some of us with uh, the fact of I don't worship him myself, or I, I, uh, I don't think I have authority to, or these other things. It may just boil down to plain and simple fear. I want you to think about what's going on at this mountain again. We thought about why they doubted, but I also want you to think about why they might have been afraid. When Jesus tells them, hey, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. I want you to think of uh, how that may have landed on them. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? The man that is telling them to do this Jesus, our Savior. We read this from the safety of 2,000 years later in a county, a town that is very Christianized where people usually aren't going to mock us or harm us if we tell people about Christ. The man who told them to go make disciples of all nations, we don't know the exact timing of this, but maybe as recently as a couple days before this, had been accused of things that he did not do by powerful people, had been publicly mocked beaten and executed and laid in a grave. And people, if you read the verses right before what we read today, they've started to even create lies about him when there's this rumor they think that starts to spread of him being raised from the dead. They're paying people off to tell lies about him. There are powerful, powerful people who had just crucified him. The one who is far more powerful than them. The one who is far smarter and wiser and more godly than them had just been publicly executed not long before this for saying these very same things. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, go tell them that again. Like, go tell them what I was telling them. Go, go repeat it. Go tell them that message again. And I could imagine, if, if there's anything like me, that there would be at least a temptation to shrink back in fear. Think, seriously? Like, you might be able to stand up to them, but like, are we going to be able to stand up to them? It, it, how is that going to work? And there, there could be this temptation to let fear sink in and just paralyze them, keep them from actually going and doing what he told them to do. But he calls them to do it nonetheless. He says, go and make disciples. And I, I did like a miniature little poll on Facebook this week about uh, what the biggest reason is that we don't tell people about Christ, that we don't win souls. And overwhelmingly in the little unscientific poll, uh, the answer that people gave and some of you gave, and I think is right, is fear. That we're afraid to do it. And there's a lot of different things we may be afraid of, afraid of as we go to share the gospel. We might be, some people, this may not be you, but some of you are afraid to just have conversation at all. Even not about Christ just to talk to people publicly. That strikes fear in you, but we're commanded by Christ to make disciples. You're commanded by Christ to make disciples, not just let other people do it. Some of us have a fear of being rejected or having a loss of friendships or relationships that might come from telling them about Christ. But Christ tells us to go make disciples, to go tell them about him, go call them to respond. Some of you are afraid about embarrassment that might come if you freeze up when you try to talk to them, or they ask you something that you don't know an answer to, that would be embarrassing and feel humiliating, or you may fear looking foolish in front of them, but Christ tells you, go make disciples. Go speak to them. Go talk to them 
find a house. Tell them to respond to you. Some of you may be afraid that you're not up to the task because you maybe think of it as me in a sense versus this person. And I can't, I'm not going to be able to persuade them. Like they're deep in their sin. They're hardened as hard can be. I'm not up to the task and we're afraid to even try because we just look at our own resources and knowledge and skill and think, I can't do that. Like I can't change them. I can't change their heart and you're right. But Christ tells them, go make disciples. Go talk to them. Go speak to them. Tell them the good news because if they're going to change, it's going to be by people like you telling them about me. We fear all sorts of things, but Christ in this text, I love this, he tells them, I am with you. That's how this text ends. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I don't think that's coincidence that he says that right then. There's a lot of things he's trying to teach, but right as he calls them, hey, go tell people about me. Go make disciples of the nations. He says right on the heels of that, and remember, I am with you as you do it. Often in the prophets of the Old Testament, that phrase, I am with you, was attached to to addressing people when they were afraid of things, when they were fearful of certain nations or situations or outcomes. God would say, remember, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. And he's saying, I think, a very similar thing to these people as he commissioned them out. Fear not, because I am with you as you go about this task. I think we need to remember this, uh, and you need to hear this as a believer, is that Christ is with you as you make disciples. He is with you as you speak to people. He is with you as you have fear rise up in your heart that may tempt you to be paralyzed or to bite your tongue. He is with you. And he wants them to know this because he says in verse 20, Behold, I am with you always. He's like drawing attention to it. Remember, I'm with you. Behold it. Remember it. Latch on to this idea. I am with you as you go to speak to people. I am with you when you're afraid to talk to them. When they ask you questions that you don't know. When they, they get upset with you. Remember, I'm with you. When, when these things happen, I am with you. And his presence should give us courage. The fact that he is with us should give us courage that lets us overcome the fears that we have heart. We must tell ourselves that he is with us over and over and over and let our fear rise up. That he is with me. He is with you. He is with you. And I want you to hear that today if you are one who is timid to share your faith. If you are timid to tell people if you're fearful of these outcomes or some other things I didn't even mention. I want you to hear Christ tell you today I am with you. Be brave on my behalf. I've given you authority to speak to these people. I will help you. I'm not going to exempt you from hard questions and embarrassing situations and rejection. Those things may come. But if they come, and when they come, I am with you. Like, take courage. Be bold. Be courageous for me. I I was thinking, Austin, I don't know what your parents were like, but uh, sometimes if I would be like on an athletic team or some part of some event and I'd be getting ready for it and I'd see my mom or dad walk into the gym or walk into the, uh, the room if it was some quiz bowl thing I was in or whatever. It would give me some sort of like encouragement like when I had been really afraid about what was going to happen or nervous about what was going to happen. Just knowing that my dad was there or that my mom was there would give me this encouragement like, yeah, I can do this. Like I can, I can do this better. We have things, situations like that where just knowing somebody's in the room, knowing somebody's there with me gives me courage to do something I might have been tempted to not do if they weren't. When we come to share our faith, it's not just our dad in the room, it's not just a friend we love in the room, it is Christ 
in us and with us as we're afraid. That's way better than a coach or a parent or a teacher or a friend. We have Christ himself by the Holy Spirit giving us courage, giving us strength. He is the one. And if we didn't have him with us in this task, no one would be saved. We could go teach and preach all we want and nobody would get saved. But he's with us and he's the one who can actually change He's the one who can soften their hearts. He's the one who can give them faith. And he's the one who can help us know what to say. He's the one who can give us courage, who can sustain us when they do reject us. He's the one who will stand up for us when people tear us down. He is with us. And that is good news. The last thing I would say, the last heading from this text that I would call a reason that we have this gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do is what I would call individualism. Individualism. We tend, when we think about evangelism, when we think about this task of soul winning, taking the good news to people and calling them to respond, we tend to think of it I would use the analogy of sports. We tend to think of it as like a one-on-one sport, more like golf or tennis, things like that, instead of a team sport where we do things together, like a sport like soccer or a sport like football, uh, baseball, sports like that. We tend to think of it more as a one-on-one individual thing, me and this person I'm talking to, instead of a group thing, that we do this together. And I would point out to you that Christ could have commissioned these people individually, couldn't he? He could have gone to Peter and said, Peter, you individual, go make disciples of me. John, you. He could have gone to his house, wherever he was, you go make disciples of me in the rest of your life. He could have gone to the women that he saw at the tomb earlier that morning and said, hey, ladies, or to the individual lady, to Mary, say, you go make disciples. But he met them collectively on this mountain, and he told them together, you all, together, go make disciples. Go tell people about me. Go call people to respond to this truth about me and to call upon me as their savior. Even earlier in his ministry, if you read back over the course of Jesus' life, when he had sent out people into towns to to preach and to talk to people and to even heal people, things like that, he didn't send them out individually, did he? He sent them out in pairs at minimum. From the very beginning, he always sent them with other people to go preach, to go tell people. But we tend to think of it just as a one-person thing. It's up to me, by myself, to pray for this person, talk to this person, persuade this person to follow Christ. But Christ commissions us together as believers to make disciples. But it's a task that we do together as Christians, not as individual Christians. Soul winning, I would say, is an endeavor best done in groups. It's best done with people helping you. Think about the power that comes from having people pray for you in your life group or in your home or friends that you know. If you know you're going to have a conversation with people, invite people to pray for you. Pray with you for that person as you have opportunity to talk to them. We can help people not just in, help each other not just in prayer, but even in accountability for the very act of sharing. In our life groups and friendships, can we not make it a a normal part of our conversation? I want to do this better. To ask people, hey, who are you sharing with? Who's God put in your life that you could talk to about Christ, that you could speak on behalf of him to? And have them ask you the same. And then ask if they've actually done it. Ask if they're actually doing it and how it's gone. We can help each other with accountability. We can encourage each other in this 
path, because we get discouraged, but we can encourage each other and say, the Lord can use you, the Lord can speak through you, the Lord can speak even through us to win the soul of this person and speak encouragement when there's despair in a fellow believer. Could it be that rather than thinking of just individual conversations that are that high-stakes sales pitch, that we could maybe with another couple or with a friend invite unbelievers to our home and have a meal with them and talk to them together? Not in some super high-stakes sales pitch, but talk to them about things of the Lord. Ask them questions about their spiritual state and tell them the good news together. There's courage that comes from having others uh, with us in that path. So it is important not just to remember, fellow Christian, that Christ is with you in this path, but that Christ is with us in this path, that he commissions us together in this task of making disciples. There's a ton of other reasons that we don't share our faith, that we don't share the gospel with people. There's, there's, um, we convince ourselves, I think, in our town, and we may talk about this some next week, we convince ourselves that people already believe just because of the fact that they grew up in a Christian home, and so we think, I don't need to talk to them. They, they must be good with God because they're from such and such family or I know that they used to be part of such and such church, and we, we sometimes wrongfully assume that people are right with God, and we let that turn into a gap to keep us from actually talking to them. We're at Grace College. We assume that because they're a student at a Christian college, they must have grown up hearing about the Lord, and they trust in Him, so we don't ever even talk about our soul with our fellow classmates or our roommates. Some of us do the opposite. There's another reason that we, we do the opposite, and we assume that person would never in a million years that person is so far gone, there's no way they would believe this, there's no way they would buy this, there's no way they would turn to Christ, I'm not even going to waste my time talking to them. And we might have the audacity to say that out loud, but we think it in our mind anyway. And God would want us to, to blow that idea up and say, you wouldn't have been saved if it wasn't for me. If your heart was so far gone, you needed me to break your heart, they need me to break theirs, go tell them. Like, don't assume that anyone some of us, we don't share because we don't even know any non-believers. Like we just have Christian friends. We don't even try to meet non-believers or, or talk to them about the Lord. Some of us, we don't do it because we haven't seen it modeled for us. We haven't been told how to do it or shown how to do it. Some of us, we don't. We, we have this gap because we don't know what to say. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Like, What do we actually do? What's the content? What's the questions that we ask? What, but what is the content of the gospel that I need to share with people? And how do I say this? We'll talk about that next Sunday. So I want to end with this before we sing. I want you to hear in this text the tone of Christ as he speaks with Peter. As he tells us, told them, now tells us uh, to go make disciples. Jesus here with his disciples, even as they doubted, even as they probably had fears well up in their heart, he is not harsh with them and aggressive with them and just saying, suck it up and do this. Like, this is the right thing. Go do it. He has this compassionate presence, at least it seems to me, as he speaks to them, where he, he meets them in the midst of their doubt. He meets them, yes, as true worshipers of him, but he gives them this huge commission to go to all the nations with the gospel, call people to respond to me, baptize people, come hell or high water, like, there will be opposition that comes from you. But he reminds them, he ends with this note of, I am with you always to the end of 
to age. He's wanting them to know I am with you as, as fears rise up, as you, uh, as you have difficulties come. These are even men who just a, maybe a couple days before this had abandoned him when it came time for the cross. He is commissioning them. He's entrusting this message to them. And he's not doing it as some harsh dictator, but as a loving friend and savior who has authority over death and over all people and inviting them, commanding them to be part of the spread of the gospel. And I want us to hear Christ speaking to us that way today, that he is not just saying, suck it up, Christian, do this, like go tell people the right thing to do. You must do it. Just go do it. But he's inviting us to, to find the reasons we don't, and he is lovingly calling us to overcome those things. Say, don't let those excuses continue. Resolve those excuses. Be aware of them. Talk to yourself. Know the truth, and then speak to people. Be bold, be courageous, and I will be with you. I will accompany your witness, your preaching of the gospel, 